All right, here we go. John 10, we're going to finally wrap it up today. It's been a few days. It's been a few weeks uh, since we started John chapter 10. And I think we're, we're kind of coming to the close of it this week. Hopefully, we'll see how far we get. Uh, there's, there's a lot to continue to unfold in this passage. And I hope that you are taking advantage and really submitting your life to the Good Shepherd because it's when we submit our life to the Good Shepherd that we experience the abundant life that He comes to offer us. And so that's what we're going to really talk about today and in kind of an unfolding uh, story that began, he's, he's inviting us to believe. We, we go back to, and, and I keep reminding us of this, and I want, to, I want to keep pushing it. If we go to John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, uh, John writes in his gospel, there are many things that, that Jesus did, and all the books in the world couldn't contain them. But I have written these things, I have given you these things, John 20, 31, I've given you these things here in the gospel of John so that through them you might believe and by believing them you might have life in his name. And so again, the major thrust of every passage of every scripture that we read is that we would be moved to greater belief in Jesus. And so there are a few kind of side peripheral things that I want to touch on today and I believe that they're essential to the passage and they're essential to our understanding, but I don't necessarily know that the actual audience and hearers would have grasped these things. And I don't actually know that it's the overarching thrust of the passage, although it supports it. And so I want to introduce these to you. And here's what I would say out of the gates is um, I am... I'm, I'm probably going to frustrate you more than give you answers. I'm going I'm to give you some, some content, and my hope is, is not to fully, I, I could spend an entire sermon talking about each one of these topics, but my hope is today is to introduce these to you, and if you're unfamiliar with them, to encourage you to go and do further study, continue to have conversations in your community groups. Continue to gather with friends and have these, these, these uh, conversations. The dialogue surrounding these three topics are essential to securing us, to helping us persevere in our faith. Um, but there are some differences of opinion on these things. And so I would tell you uh, the, the church universal, the evangelical Christian church, Protestant church has some differing beliefs. And I would tell you that there are uh, many people who disagree, who are very wise, who are wiser than you and I, and have debated these things for years. And they stand on opposite sides of the aisle about how they discuss these things. But I will tell you what we believe, and we'll encourage you to go and do further study. Now, there's some things that we universally hold as the Protestant evangelical Christian church and that's the view of the Trinity, where Jesus describes himself, I and the Father are one. And with that one, there is no disagreement, okay? And so we have two topics. There's some disagreement on. One, we're, we're in line with, okay? But I want to introduce those so that we can really grasp and hopefully firm us up in our faith. That's the hope. And so uh, before I do so, because I, I'm going to, I want to touch on these three things, and then I want to... Um, kind of broaden out rather than looking at 22 through 42, which was assigned for us today, to really talk broader about the whole of John chapter 10 and talk about is he's the good shepherd, 
He's, he's the one who invites us into abundant life. My question is, is, is he your shepherd? And what are some uh, archetypes of belief and maybe shadows of belief? Because I, I think even though he's speaking here to people who are not believers, that there is unbelief in all of our life that we need to wrestle with. And so that's where I'm going. You know where we're headed, okay? Brief overview. John 10, 22, he starts off, he talks about the Feast of Dedication. And you're like, what in the world's Feast of Dedication? Why is that important? This is ultimately Hanukkah. And so in 167 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes takes over and profanes the Jerusalem temple. So he comes in, he basically slaughters a pig on the altar. I mean, it's, it's, it's disgraceful. It's, it's basically just brings pagan rituals into the temple. And it wouldn't be until about 164 BC that Judas Maccabeus would kind of gather some freedom fighters and they would go in and they would reclaim the temple and begin worship there. And so what happened in, in that is they found a, a flask of oil. I shared this several weeks ago and they burned that. What initially should have only been enough to light the temple for one day, and it ended up doing it for eight days. And this is how we have the festival of Hanukkah. And this is around our time, December 25th, when we celebrate it. And then we have some description of where Jesus was. And he was in the, the what does it say, the, the colonnade of Solomon. He's walking in the temple. Um, Jews are gathering around him. And so this is mainly description of the weather in which that he was there and kind of present to, to block the wind. Jesus is there teaching. He's standing, which is unique. He's not sitting as a rabbi would frequently teach. And the Jews are surrounding him. And they're basically to a point where they're pretty fed up. And I would tell you that John 10 is a turning point in John's gospel. Because at the very end of this, John is going to describe that Jesus is going to leave Jerusalem. And he's not coming again until the triumphal entry. And so this is where he leaves, and it says he remains there. So he's outside of Jerusalem for all the remaining time, and this is kind of their last interaction and engagement with Jesus. And here, they, they have this conversation. They're getting frustrated, and ultimately, they say, would you just tell us? Tell us plainly. Tell us who you are. And Jesus is very clear. I've, I've done that. I've, I've told that. I've, I've done. Can you not see it in, in these works, in these miracles, in the opening of eyes, in the healing of the blind man? Uh, have you not been able to see it? He said, these works bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. Now, right there, we have the first uh, kind of doctrinal thing that we need to press into. I'm going to come back, Okay. Because it seems kind of out of order. You do not believe because you're not my sheep. It seems you're not my sheep, which is why you shouldn't believe, but that's not what he says. Okay? He goes on, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And we have the second doctrinal point that we want to emphasize right there. That, that, that no one can take us from his hand. And it's interesting, he says, out of my hand, the father who has given to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. So it's like Jesus's hand is in the father's hand. And then he says, I and the father are one. And there's our third doctrinal point that we wanna make, the idea of, of Jesus being God. And it was those six words in verse 30 
I and the Father are one, that Jesus becomes a disruptive presence amongst the Jews, and they pick up stones to stone him. And Jesus, he, he gives like the ultimate Jesus juke here. Like he quotes, a, he quotes a psalm, and he's like, hey, what about this? And then, wah, he's out of there. He's like a ninja. Like he, he disappears, right? Because they were like, oh, he wasn't able to stone him. He was able to get away. And, uh, and so Jesus stumps him, disappears, moves on. And it says he appears again where, G, where John the Baptist was baptizing. And there they received no sign, but many people believed. But there's this invitation at the very end that I want us to uh, touch on. And it says this in verse 37 and 38. If I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Now, in our English reading of this text, it doesn't have the emphasis that it would initially have in the Greek. And again, I'm not one of the pastors that loves to get up and impress you because we know Greek words, because the truth is I don't know Greek words. I have a concordance that tells me what it says, and then I read that and I go, oh, that's significant. We need to highlight it. And the thing is, is know and understand there are actually the same word in the Greek language, but one means past tense, you knew, and keep on knowing. You know and you more fully know. And what's interesting is it doesn't take faith or knowing or belief and put it as a one-time event. We've talked about this previously. It's not a one-time event, but that you would know and that you would keep on knowing, that you would keep on engaging and inquiring more and more about the person and work of Jesus. And what I want you to see is that Jesus is inviting us into deeper relationships. He is inviting us to know him more, to know him as the good shepherd, to know him as our good shepherd. And so ultimately, there's more than what we're currently experiencing. And I just, I I want you to hear that as an invitation this morning, that there is more to Jesus to keep on knowing, we wouldn't have been given that invitation if there's not more for us to grasp, if there's not more for us to take in, if there's not more to this relationship with Jesus being our good shepherd. We are invited to know him more and to keep on knowing him more and to keep on knowing him more. There's an invitation and it never runs out. There is more depth to Jesus than we can possibly imagine, okay? So that's the overview. Three primary doctrines addressed. Here's the first one. In John chapter 10, verse 25, 26, Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. Now, Jesus is a disruptive presence, okay? How many of us, we would love to just be told it's helpful when somebody's like, hey, here's where you are. And Jesus just says, hey, you're not my sheep. And we're like, well, that's not kind. Well, Jesus isn't always kind. Jesus is truthful. Jesus is loving. And to be loving means sometimes he tells them the truth. You're not my sheep. Now, it seems backwards to the way many of us think about when it comes to faith in Jesus. We think, 
we become his sheep and or we believe, right? And we become a sheep or, we sh- or we're his sheep and then we believe. Which order is it? And it can be kind of confusing when we first read this passage. He says, you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. We would think, hey, you're not my sheep because you do not believe. When you look back at a, at a point in time when you came to faith in Jesus, and again, I don't mean this to confuse us, and again, I was hesitant to bring it up. But the idea here is that ultimately what we call the unconditional election of Jesus, or what we would call the sovereignty of God in salvation. If you've heard the topic of Calvinism or Arminianism, like this is the, the length old debate of wonder of how saving grace is applied to the life of a person. What we would hold to is this idea of unconditional election, that God chooses some of who will be saved. Now, immediately in our minds, we go, that's not fair. The truth is, it's, it's totally unfair, that, and, and it's not fair that any of us come to saving grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1, 4 through 5 is maybe a supporting verse of this. Ephesians 1, 4 through 5, it says, Even as he chose us in him, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that he, sh- he would show us holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Now, so I would tell you, there, there is not one reason in the world why, why the unconditional election means we're all image bearers of God, but he chooses some who will be saved. Now, I will tell you, as this doctrine surfaces, there, there's many that are going to, that, that upsets, and rightfully so. Uh, John Calvin, which this one is usually pinned back to him, which is why it's called Calvinism, um, and, and basically, this is not all that John Calvin wrote or talked about. Uh, but John Calvin said that I wanted to, you will find in his chapter, Institutes of Christian Religion, I believe it's called. He writes about the topic of prayer long before he talks about the, the, the idea of the sovereignty of God and salvation. He's like, I, I want to make sure people understand who God is and where he's at and their posture before the Lord and humility before the Lord. And ultimately, this really comes down to there is nothing in Justin Bendel that, that caused me to be saved and put my faith in Jesus other than Jesus choosing me, all, other than Jesus putting his faith by grace through faith not of myself, not of works, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, so that no one can boast. We can't be like, hey, I'm smarter than the rest of you because I chose Jesus. There's no, there's no way I can claim that. And so it moves me to a posture of humility where before the Lord, I'm going, I, I don't know why, but God in his, in his wisdom, in his, uh, in his ways, in, in, in his knowledge, I, I, was, I was chosen, and at the right time, God revealed that to me, and I put faith that was given to me. He opened my eyes. He removed the scales. I couldn't have done it in and of my own strength. He opens my eyes to see the reality of grace, 
and my life is forever changed. Now, what we would say, there's passages, God wishes for all to be saved. Yes, God does wish. His desire is that all would be saved, but his will and his desire are two different things. God wills for some to be saved. He has a desire that does not actually actualize. It doesn't necessarily mean that he's without power or he's unable to. The opposite view of this is that we cooperate with grace that saves us. And so it's our cooperation, it's our uh, involvement, our engagement with that. And here's what I would say. Um, When we ask like, what's at stake in this doctrine and why is it essential for us to understand and believe? Again, I told you I'm, I'm highlighting here. If God produces it, then he's also the one to empower it and sustain it, not you. If God produces it, he is powerful enough to sustain it and keep it, which is ultimately what is going to lead us right into the second important doctrine that he touches on, which is perseverance of the saints. You may have heard this described as once saved, always saved. And what he's going to talk about here is, you, you can't snatch my sheep out of my hand. Like, he's got a tight grip on them. I remember right after I be, uh, like was curious about the things of Jesus, and again, going back to the sovereignty of God of salvation, the Lord caused that curiosity. There was a disruptive presence, witness in my life that allowed me to open my eyes to see God in his power, God in his works, opens my eyes, as an 18-year-old, and I'm given a book. It's called In His Grip. Now, here's what's funny about it. I was a golfer in high school, all right? It was a golf Jesus book, okay? The Lord will use anything, right? In His Grip. You know, it's like, take a grip on that club. You know, do you use interlocking or overlap? Anybody? Interlock, okay, all right, good. And What's interesting is this whole book just talked about different analogies or principles that were taken from the game of golf and, and the idea being that we are in his grip. We are in his grasp. And I look back on that now and I'm like, the Lord can use anything, right? The Lord uses anything in his grip. If you're a golfer, pick it up. It may help you. Here's what he says in John 10, 28 through 29. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given to them to me is greater than all and no one's able to snatch them out of my father's hand. This is about perseverance, the mighty act of God to persevere Christians by his power through their ongoing faith until their salvation is complete. So the question is, can a truly born-again Christian lose their salvation? And I think all of us know situations where we've experienced someone who we go, they love the Lord, they seem genuine in their salvation, they seem genuine in their belief, they seem genuine and authentic, they, they seem to present fruits of the Spirit, but at some time in their life, they seem to have walked away, did they lose their salvation? Was Jesus not able to keep them in his grasp? Did he lose one of his sheep? Did they revert again to spiritual, spiritual death, even though he allowed them to be born again? 
And the thing that I would say, and the thing that many commentators, many theologians would help us grasp is, is that we would look back and go that possibly they never had saving faith in the first place. Now, we can look back. We can read John chapter 6. I remember uh, when Chris taught, we talked about the authenticity of faith and true, lasting, authentic faith. And um, even in that idea of, of we, we saw that some of that faith was not authentic. Some of that faith was genuine. It was belief, but it actually didn't, didn't bring about the works of God. And so they've never had truth. Their faith was artificial. The trust in Christ wasn't genuine. Uh, verse, maybe to reference, 1 John 2.19 says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. And it's the idea of like, if they, if they were sheep, if they were, if they were Christians, if they were truly born again, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they're not of us. And so we have this idea of saving faith and persevering, that if you're genuinely saved, that Ultimately, he will sustain that and he will be the author and perfecter of your faith until glorification, until we see Jesus face to face. He's going to persevere you. Now, we all know stories again of where like we see, I, no, I think their faith was genuine. I think there was a time and they've walked away. And, you know, we can look at examples in Matthew chapter 13, where it's the parable of the sower, where seed falls on rocky soil. The seed on the rocky ground represents people who respond with initial enthusiasm. But what happens? It doesn't sink in deep. It's rocky soil. It's hard soil. And when persecution or hard times come, the seeds scatter. And it doesn't actually produce fruit. And so it's this idea, Jesus is saying, I know my sheep, they know me, they listen to me, they follow me, and no one can take them from me. Now, what's at stake in this doctrine? Why is that of great comfort? Why do we need to know that today? It's of great comfort, and it ties in with the abundant life that Jesus offers because this, we don't have to feel the constant pressure of maintaining our faith. If you've genuinely given your life to Jesus and you're genuinely saved, your faith is authentic, not artificial, then we are not constantly asking the question, am I good? Am I good? Am I in right? Like, is, is, is this, am I in good place? Am I good? You are able through the powerful grip. It's not us holding on to Jesus. It's Jesus holding on to us. And it's like, you're, nothing can take you out of my grip. Now, does that mean that we're not going to sin? No, I, I mean, come on. We all know. If we're honest with each other in the room, we all know we all sin. We all fall short. And if we're constantly in fear of losing our salvation, if we're constantly, it's ultimately going to keep our eyes fixed on us, not on Jesus. Because we're constantly asking, have I done enough? Have I done enough? Have I done enough? Have I done enough? And we live within a culture right here in Salt Lake City that is constantly asking that question. Church, you are secure. If you've truly been born again, truly, you have authentic faith. Nothing can snatch us out of his hand. Third thing is this, John 10, 30. I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. Few bullet points in this. 
The Son of God is the second person of the Trinity sharing divine nature. He is God. Again, that's highly debated. People are like, he never claims to be God. Let me, uh, this just popped in my head here real quick. Um, Verse 30, he says, I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones and again to stone him. Verse 33, the Jews answered him, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you. So they're not killing Jesus for his miracles. They're killing him for blasphemy. The reason Jesus is going to go to the cross is for what he said, claiming to be God. And they said, why? Because you, being a man, make yourself God. So when we all, because you're going to hear this, Jesus never claimed to be God. Jesus claims to be God. And the people who wanted to persecute him says, you're claiming to be God. And Jesus doesn't deny it. Okay? But being fully God, the Son is equal with the Father and Holy Spirit in nature, power, and glory. But he's distinct in his role that he serves within the Trinity. Okay? 2,000 years ago, the eternal Son of God became incarnate. He, took, he became the God-man. Okay? Fully divine, fully human. And this is the... the this is what enables him to be the appropriate sacrifice for our sins. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. What's at stake in this doctrine? Here's the thing, our salvation is at stake in this doctrine. Only the fully divine son could pay the infinite penalty for sin. Only he as a human could be a substitute for sinful human beings. It has to fully be the God man, Okay. So, we have these three. They're meant to secure us. Again, in my 40 minutes here of, of time, we, we're, not able, we're, we're just surface level on many of these. But the depths, as we know and more fully know the truth about who Jesus is, and we wrestle with these truths, they begin to secure us in our faith. I would encourage you to wrestle. And so while I say that, while I believe these are incredibly important and things we should wrestle with, I want us to get back to the thrust of what I believe this gospel is, uh, is teaching us. To know and to keep on knowing, to keep you assured. And here's what I would say. There's three archetypes of belief. Or what I would say, uh, there's belief and there's some shadows of belief. Here's what we see in John 10, 37. If I'm not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am the father. He he is offering an invitation to believe, to know and to keep on knowing, to know and to keep on knowing. And so we have the sheep, we have the skeptic, and we have the self-righteous. Now, what is he inviting us to be in this passage? The sheep, right? And what I want to show us is while he's speaking to skeptics and self-righteous, we as believers in Jesus also have skeptical skepticism and self-righteous tendencies. These are the shadows of belief. And ultimately, what I want to push us towards is seeing Jesus as the good shepherd and us rightfully taking our place as his sheep, okay? So I want to describe 
the skeptic. I want to describe the self-righteous because these are the two groups of people that Jesus regularly discusses and, and has conversation with. He comes to the skeptic. We've seen the conversations of the skeptic throughout these passages. We, we see that curiosity, like, can this be the Christ? Can a, I mean, you call him a demon-possessed man, and, but can a demon, someone who's possessed by a demon, heal the blind? Only God can do that. And you see this questioning. You see this skepticism. You see the self-righteous who believe they have no need. They're climbing in another way. They have no need for Jesus. In many ways, they believe themselves to be God. They place themselves in the position of God. And they believe that they hold the power and ability and strength to be able to accomplish whatever it is. They have no need for the good shepherd. And then we have the sheep. And that's what I, I, I just, I want us to step into this morning, understanding what it means for us to truly be the sheep and contrast that against the skeptic and contrast that against the self-righteous, okay? So what are, what are some of the, the, the fruit that we see coming out of the life of a skeptic, okay? And think about your own skepticism, Think about the own areas of, of unbelief that exist in your life. Where we don't believe Jesus possesses the uh, power to overcome circumstances that we're facing. We don't believe that he truly knows what we're facing. We're skeptical about, is he aware? Failing to believe in who Jesus is and what he's capable of. What I would, what I would call the, the skeptic is hard-headed. It's just difficult wrapping my mind around. We have hard-headed tendencies. I don't believe he's powerful enough. I, I don't believe he knows me. I don't believe that he's aware. I believe that he's unable. And here, like we read in Matthew 6.30, if, if you would, would be here, and, and I was meeting with some different groups of, of folks this past week, and even hearing, like some of our doubts, some of our unbelief is is masked in this idea of it's skepticism, it's unbelief. That we don't truly believe that Jesus can be our good shepherd and really care for us. And so we read passages like Matthew chapter 6, verse 30, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow, and it's thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith, therefore do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? Here's the thing. Is that a descriptor of our life? Do we worry about what we're going to eat, what we're going to drink, what we're going to wear? Do we worry about the circumstances and situations of life? And then in many ways, these are our skeptical tendencies. It's, it's the areas of life that is revealing of unbelief in our life. We're skeptics, right? And I would ask this morning, where, where does your faith match that of the skeptic? Where do, do we not live and, and not trust that we have a good shepherd that is powerful enough, knows enough, strong enough, and so you, we don't submit our life to him. On the other side of that is the self-righteous. The self-righteous is the Pharisees. They're very outward focused. They're very self-sufficient with their laws. 
They attempt to live life apart from God. They're dependent on their own strength and self-sufficiency. Often those who give to self-righteous tendencies are over-believing in their ability to control and order things in life. So rather than entrusting and submitting our life to the good shepherd, we say, I got this. I'm going to control this. I'm going to rule this. I'm the one who's powerful. And ultimately, in our self-righteous tendencies, it, it leads to control, restlessness, fear, anxiety. And this is where many of us spend our life. Because we're attempting to be the God of our lives. And at the end of the day, we make terrible gods. And if we're honest with ourselves, we know that we're incapable of actually controlling anything. If we're honest with ourselves, we realize and recognize that we don't have the power over what's going to happen in five minutes. We're limited in our knowledge. We're limited in our power. We're limited in our strength. And yet, I got to do this. And so, on a good day, when not distracted, we realize our track record has not been so good at ordering our life. R.C. Sproul says this, most Christians salute the sovereignty of God, but believe in the sovereignty of man. That's where we put our trust. I say, yes, God is sovereign, but... And here's what I would say. Ultimately, with the self-righteous, either Jesus is the good shepherd or you're attempting to be the good shepherd. You're attempting to decide what's best for you. You're attempting to guide your own life. And if you want to know, like maybe a, a test to decide, like how, how do I know if I'm giving in to self-righteous tendencies, if that's where my unbelief lies. When life falls apart, what's the first thing you turn to in solving it? Is it the good shepherd? When life falls apart, where do, where do you go? Strategy? You know, we pull out the dry erase markers and the whiteboard and we're like, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna nail this down. And it just goes to show. And it's not to say that we shouldn't do anything right? The good shepherd can lead us to green pastures. We have to eat. But ultimately, are we seeing ourselves as the one that we are the guides, that we want to be Lord of our life, king over our life? So maybe I ask you this morning, where does your faith match that of the self-righteous? Where does your faith match that of the self-righteous? And here's what I would tell you with both of those, the shadows of belief. Neither one of those lead to the abundant life that Jesus offers. So we can grasp and take the reins of our life and be the guide and be the good shepherd and it doesn't lead to abundant life. And we can come and we can doubt and live in a place of not truly believing that Jesus is able to accomplish what he says and so I'm still left on my own, leading to fear, anxiety, nervousness. Or we can come to see ourselves as sheep. And this is what he's inviting us into, is to position your life submitted to the good shepherd. Let him be guide. Let him be God. 
Let him be Lord. And so it's a submission. And it's in that submission and giving over of our life that actually leads to the abundant life. So when we think of the sheep, they are protected, cared for. You can read back through John chapter 10. I'm just highlighting everything it says about the sheep. They're protected, they're cared for, they're kept, they're led, they're guided, they experience life, they're saved, they find pasture, they're protected, they're cared for, they're known, they're guided, they're preserved, they never perish. And this is what he's inviting us into knowing and to keep on knowing. To submit and to keep on submitting our life to the good shepherd. And ultimately, in experiencing that, in walking in step with that, then we will be marked by a deep calm. He's our good shepherd. He promises to do that, and by faith, we step out and believe it. By faith, we step out and walk in it. By faith, we choose to put those things to test. You said you'll preserve me. You said you would give me abundant life. You said you would watch over me. You said you would guide me. You said you would lead me. You said you would protect me. You said you would preserve me. And to, by faith, we choose to believe it. We don't give in to skepticism that doubts it, and we don't try to take the reins ourselves. We become a sheep and entrust our lives to the good shepherd. Where does your faith match that of a sheep? Where does your faith match that of a sheep? And here's what I'd say for those of us in the room go like, that's, that's where I want to be. That's where I want to live. And I truly, I believe that's most of our hearts. Like we truly want to live our lives in submission. But foolishly, like we, we get distracted And unless there's a disruptive presence in our life, we just keep going the course. And what Jesus comes and does is he's the disruptive presence. And he says things like, you're not my sheep. And he says things like, I and the Father are one. And it's meant to startle us. And there's a great book by Alan Noble. It's called uh, A Disruptive Witness. And it talks about four disruptive things that happen in a distracted age that awaken us out of skepticism and awaken us out of self-righteousness to come back to a place of going, oh man, I have a good shepherd who guides me and leads me. And so we need this disruptive presence. And what's sad about this story is this is the last time that he's with this group of people And he leaves. And I'm going, I just want to be aware. I want to be in tune that if if he's trying to get my attention, if he's trying to wake me up and say, hey, you're here. I think about how often you walk into a mall and you go up and there's a map and it says, you are here. That's really helpful. I'm like, oh, that's great. I know where I'm at. I know where I want to be. And I'm thankful because we live in such a distracted age that we don't always take stock. Where are we? Are we actually under the care and guidance of a good shepherd? And no, and then something disruptive happens in life, whether it be 
a person, whether it be a circumstance, whether it be a crisis. But in a, in a moment, we open our eyes and we're like, oh man, I need to come back to the place of a good shepherd. And this is the way he grows us and we walk with him and we walk in step with him. And so we need that disruptive presence. And I pray that this text would be a disruptive presence in our life today to help us acknowledge the place. Is he our good shepherd? Is he leading and guiding our life? I'll end with this. I'll invite the worship team to come on up. It says in this idea of what does it mean, like the description of, he says, you are not my sheep. And then he follows that with, this is what the sheep do. And he says, in that, it says, they hear my voice. They're known and they know me and they're known by me. And they follow me. And I just, is that a rhythm of your life? Are you constantly placing your life before the voice of the good shepherd? Are you hearing his voice? Are you constantly positioning your life to be known by Jesus and to know Jesus? Are you constantly positioning your life to follow Jesus and be obedient to Jesus? And I want to give you one really clear example, and I would encourage you to really flesh this out in community groups. of going, what does it look like to hear his voice? How do I position my life in front of his voice? How do I know him and continue to be known by him? And how do I follow him? How do I continue to follow him as my guide, as my good shepherd? And I'll give you one example that happened in my life this week. Positioning my life in front of the word, the word speaking, feeling known by God the Father, and walking in obedience to that. This past Wednesday, we gathered here for our prayer gathering at 6.30 on Wednesday morning. My heart was burdened for a friend, a person that I would say I love dearly and have just been concerned about where he's at with Jesus and his relationship with Jesus and his, his life being stewarded by the good shepherd and feeling concern over him. And just really over the, pro, the last several weeks and primarily the early few days of this week, just feeling incredibly burdened and overwhelmed with that. And I can move into a tendency of self-righteousness, of feeling like I need to be his good shepherd and I need to, to go and grab him and shake him and be forceful. Anybody like that? Probably not. But sometimes we need it. And I'm like, hey man, like you have a good shepherd, you know? And I'm like, I need to believe that. And I can give in to skepticism that the Lord's not, you know, present with him. He's not able to engage him. The Lord's not able to open his eyes and renew his heart. And just feeling discouraged of going, man, I just feel like I got to do so much. And I feel weighted. I feel burdened down. I'm like, that's not the abundant life. And so rather than going, hey, Jesus, you're wrong. I ask myself, where am I wrong? 
Where am I not hearing your voice? Where am I not positioning my life and feeling known by you? Where am I in my life not following you? Because I don't feel like this feels like the abundant life. I'm burdened for my friend. I'm burdened. Like this is not where I feel like I'm supposed to be. And we came in, our prayer gathering, we opened to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. You can go back and read it. But in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, um, Paul is, is writing to the church in Thessalonica and saying, we weren't able to be with you. We weren't able to be present with you. And I was concerned that your faith, that, that it's in some ways it's diminished. That maybe the enemy, Satan himself, has distracted you, that he's pulled you into controversies. And in some ways, you're just not faithfully following the Lord. And so we sent Timothy to you. And Timothy came back and he brought good news to us that your faith was actually still standing strong, that your faith was actually persevering. And at the very end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, 13, it says this, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints so that he may establish your hearts. Not Justin, but the good shepherd. And in a moment, because we pray, repent, ask, yield. We use the acronym pray on our Wednesday mornings. In a moment of repentance, of just showing and revealing my own unbelief, of believing that we have a good shepherd that loves this brother way more than I could love him. That is after his heart way more than I could be after his heart. That is pursuing him way more than I could pursue him. And what I was told in that moment is I can rest. I felt like as I read that he may establish that I can rest and experience the abundant life. It doesn't mean that I don't go, that it, it doesn't mean that I don't go and care. It doesn't mean that I don't engage, but I release the weight of feeling like I have to be the good shepherd. And it's God's word, God's voice, him knowing my circumstances, that he speaks this good word over me. And here's what I would tell you this morning. I don't know what it is, but it says that the sheep are known. So here's what I would tell you is whatever is weighing you down, whatever you're experiencing this morning that is not an experience of the abundant life, would you submit to the good shepherd? Would you submit all of your life to the good shepherd? He knows you. He wants you to know him. He wants you to hear his voice and he wants you to follow him and walk by faith in it. Just be a sheep. You can imagine what it means just to be, I think of my kids, like they live with such freedom in our home because they know like, hey, they're provided for. They're not wondering when their next meal is going to be on the table, where the next dollar is coming from. And this is how the good shepherd invites us to be, of just submit your life to me and let me take it. Let's pray. Father, we want to walk with that type of faith. We want to walk in that type of belief. We want to walk knowing 
that you're the good shepherd. We want to hear your voice. Lord, we, we long to have this abundant life. And I'm thankful that you invite us into it. And so this morning, I just pray uh, that we would take our role as sheep, that we would step into this idea of what it means just to be a sheep. That's where we want to be. And so, Lord, I pray right now in our time of response, Lord, that you would move in this room, that we would come, even in the front of this room here, that we would come, kneel down and open our hands. We would surrender over our life to your shepherding. We would release control. Lord, I pray that you would, even in the midst this morning, you would shepherd us. We pray this in Jesus' name.